Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad, where I was a detective sergeant. Today, we have a little bit of an unusual guest. It's not like a real crime story, but in essence, it sort of is. His name is Jonathan Alpiri. I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. And he, he has a book out called The Shattered Lens, which is a war photographer's true story of captivity and survival in Syria. In Syria, excuse me. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's uh, tremendous. We usually don't have uh, photographers to come on the show, and, and especially war photographers. I wanted to ask you a question, first of all. What first drew you to photography? I think the beginning of my career is a bit unusual. Uh, there are two main reasons why I decided to, uh, to be a war photographer. Number one goes back to my childhood, which is I had a lot of family members who fought in all the big European wars. I'm European, I'm from France originally, so I had great-grandparents who fought in World War One. my grandparents fought in World War Two. I have uncles who fought at the Indian Fu in Indochina and Nigeria. So I grew up in that. That's bit in my DNA, to say the least. And, but you know, uh, so then, then, then the question begs for me is, then why didn't you go into the service? I did. Turns out uh, I work better on my own than uh, getting uh, receiving orders from others. But I did consider, <laughs> that's just the way I am, but uh, I did consider going to, uh, to West Point when I was in middle school. That's wow. something that I wanted to do. To be an officer, I didn't want to be just a soldier. I wanted to lead men into battle. That was a big thing for me. Cool. And, you know, the thing is, so we know why you were drawn into photography, but specifically war photography, and you answered both of those questions that you had family in World War I, World War II, and then uh, Indonesia. Was that the Vietnam War someone was Uh, in? Yeah, Indochina. Yeah, it was still a French colony at the time. So, But, you know, I would think that, you know, like I – being a police officer for 27 years, I was drawn to the crime fighting part yeah. of police work. You know, there's people that go into it for different reasons, but I, I, w- I wasn't like a community policing type officer. I liked working plain clothes. I liked working, going after the guns and, and the robberies and that type of stuff. And people would have, of course, accused me and others like me of being an adrenaline junkie. Is that what you think you are? I think adrenaline is a, has something to do with it. The, the thing about adrenaline is that you don't really know if you have it or this is something for you until you actually experience it. Whether in your line of work, which is being being on the street and taking bad guys off the street or dealing with drugs and, and all these things. When it comes to war, for example, with combat, uh, which is something you find out if it's for you or not, especially when it's the first time. And then you know if it's for you. Of course, there are different degrees of intensity, and then some people fold and others don't. For me, it was very quick. I knew I knew early on this is what I wanted to do. I went out there, did it, and uh, never looked back. So it was a clear choice for me. Now, you first started out, I, I believe you got your undergraduate degree in uh, medieval history at the University yeah. of Chicago, right? Yeah. And then you started out, photographing, uh, being a photographer for small news agencies, is that correct? So yeah, early on in my career, so I started shooting professionally in college at U Chicago undergrad, and uh, maybe for a year or something, then I took a year off, and 
I knew I wanted to do only international. I wasn't interested in local stories. That wasn't my thing. So I took a year off my third year in college. And I mean, I was already making a living off it. I was already starting. And a year after I graduated, I got picked up by Getty Images. So and then my career just started rising rapidly after that. So that, it, that's a pretty damn uh, good photography resume. Getty Images has some great, uh, great photos that I've seen. Yeah, no, Getty uh, taught me a lot, and I was with them for about five years, and then uh, basically went on my own. Uh, I had my own contacts, was working a lot for Vanity Fair and Paris Match and France, a lot of major international publications. And I've always wanted to have a career where at the end I was decision making my own decisions and my own moves and covering what I wanted to cover. Well, Jonathan, at least you didn't have to pay your dues going to weddings on Saturday and Sunday, you know, and photographing weddings and stuff like that, right? Uh, it's funny you mentioned that I did get hired for a big wedding photography um, company in New York, and I was fired the very next day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I told them I don't do portraits. I don't do, like, people posing. I will join. I will just get in there, and I joined the party, basically, and got these kind of raunchy pictures of people who's going crazy. They fired me the very next day. <laughs> They were really pissed off. Well, you know, I read something where, uh, and we'll get into your book, the, uh, yeah. the the Shattered Lens, but I read something where you said you would rather, in the war zones, you would rather photograph soldiers in their day-to-day -day routine than actually, you know, the death and the destruction and everything because the day-to-day -day routine shows them more as human beings and their humanity and their vulnerability than it does just photographing, you know, war and bombs and rockets and people dying. Yeah, it's 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 true. So if you when you photograph war, you you know you try to photograph everything obviously because you're there. But for the the best pictures, no, not the ones that are taken of actual combat. It's more an insinuation of certain things. For example, I know some photographers who like to photograph dead bodies because that's what they like to shoot as part of their work. That does not make a good picture. Everybody knows people are dying and people get killed in war. So you want to be able to shoot a bit differently in order to insinuate that there's death, but there's something you can find some sort of, I know it's going to sound weird, but beauty in the photography that you're taking in your composition. That's more the technical aspect of it. Now, in terms of the humanity, War is a strange thing. It's true. You could be in the very thick of it, and you can do. You can find humanity between soldiers, uh, between myself and soldiers that I've met over the years, or just local people. And the reason is, uh, and it's quite common. I think a lot of your listeners will know, is uh, most of the soldiers fight because of the guy next to them. You know, and that's that that builds from that. And I think that's very important in your photography to be able to show that as well. Well, Jonathan, you see the photograph on the scene, uh, excuse me, on the screen right now. Yeah. And does that bring you back looking at that? Do you remember the people that you're in the photo with? Do you remember what you were doing? you remember what time of day that was? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me I was, I was young once. So that was in my early in my career. <laughs> you're still young. Yeah, well, and thank you. And um, yeah, I remember some of these guys. I was, I started, I carved my, uh, how should I say this? I became uh, more and more experienced covering wars in East Africa. So I was doing a lot of uh, war stuff with different rebel groups in Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Eritrea, these places. 
while everybody was covering Iraq, I decided to do something a little different. And uh, it worked quite well because it was, there was a lot happening at the time and it was just me or very few people even bothering going out there. And these were very difficult trips because it's very dangerous, but just to get there is, a, is very complicated. You're sleeping outside, it's very hot, you don't eat that much. I mean, it's tough on your body and, and mental, but I did about four or five of these kinds of trips and they were good trips. Jonathan, I read something where um, there was a, a photo that you took that, you, that people considered was your big break. It was while you were covering, covering the conflict in East Africa. Sure. And you took an iconic picture of a female fighter in Kenya that uh, you call a very interesting version of feminism. You want to describe that photo to us and how it may be catapulted your career or launched your career or made, made you a little more accessible and maybe uh, marketable to other, you know, for, as a photographer. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly which photo you're talking about. Um, uh, the reason why it became uh, very important in my career, it became a watermark, that trip specifically, is because I had um, a big scoop, which was picked up by BBC, and then things kind of snowballed. It's just the way it happens. But more importantly, um, my comment about feminism is I like to point out to people the differences of, of feminist schools. Of course, you have the one that comes from California, which is where we have today, which is a disaster, obviously. It's, mating, it's mostly hitting men and women against each other instead of putting us together. But that's a different conversation. In France, we have a very different uh, um, understanding of it, which is a much more complementary understanding that both men and women have differences and that's the way it is and that's okay and we can help each other for that reason. And I did remember, I did a talk with, when I covered, I used to cover these wars and uh, they, they were asking me, are these women fighting alongside men? And I said, yes. But it came naturally to them. There was no like a, a woman's movement saying, oh, we want to join in fight. It wasn't like that. It was really born out of necessity and survival. And I think this is when you have the truest form of uh, equality is when people are really struggling with each other and then they can really uh, hold hands and able to fight, in this case, fight the Ethiopian government. Of course, these are extreme examples but uh, there was no question. Actually, some of these girls were uh, squad leaders. They had eight to 12 men under them. And I remember talking to the guys. I mean, you know, I was being translated. And uh, no one cared. You know, it's just the way things was. And there was no question about it. And right. they were all uh, sharing the same fate. Yeah, it's that picture. Um, oh, that, is this that iconic photo that I'm yeah, talking about? That picture is well known. Um, she's actually, she was assigned to me at some point. Uh, to uh, to make sure I was okay because um, there's a lot of, uh, I think I walked hundreds of miles in a few weeks. It was very difficult. So I was sometimes pretty tired. So they would uh, they would help me out. But uh, yeah, there was a bunch of these women around and some of them were, you know, were leaders and that's how I was. Uh, to folks that are not uh, watching this uh, and are listening to it on the podcast, there's a photograph uh, he took in Kenya and one of the fighters uh, is is a female, and it became a very, uh, very famous photograph that sort of uh, catapulted his career, or helped his career. Let's not put catapulted, but it did help his career in raising his value uh, as a photographer. Now, someone asked in the chat, uh, Austin Spriggs. He happens to be from Australia. Okay. He asked if um, 
you're responsible for your own security when you go to these war zones? So obviously, when you work out a deal with these rebel, let's talk about these specific uh, experiences. Uh, after reaching out to them, usually they, I remember they had offices in Germany or France, and they were easy to contact. So they had a political branch, and obviously wow. you want to go to the armed uh, branch of their fight, and they they set things up for you. So obviously they they have to get you to the war zone, which is a real dangerous thing to do because. Governments, if you get captured, something could, you know, all kinds of bad things can happen to you. That being said, they want to protect you as much as possible in order to, uh, because they want their story to be out and to have an international reporter, or photographer, or writer to come and struggle and risk his or her life with them is considered quite an honor for them. And they will do all their utmost to protect you and make sure you're okay and you come home and you know you, you live to tell the, the tale and the story gets published so so it's similar to being embedded say with oh it's exactly that it's, it's okay it's purely an embed yeah because if there's combat operations you're with them like you live with them you sleep sleep where they sleep you eat what they eat you suffer what they suffer you're totally with them there's no difference i mean a lot of the places you go to it's got to be nasty out there and i mean the food you're eating or those k rations or those mr uh what is it mris meals ready to eat or mres right MRIs, yeah i i i only worked once with the u.s army so i never had but i remember when i was covering the war in afghanistan with the french foreign legion they, there was uh, uh an underground black oh, they, they must have had quiche then jonathan if the french foreign legion <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, they had 18 different kind of meals, and it was um, not prepared because, but it was uh, set up by a very famous French chef. And the French, <laughs> and he, it's, it's true, and it was actually quite good. So you would choose what you want to eat that day, and U.S. troops that were nearby would come over, and they would bring, they would shove their air in my eyes, but they, no one wanted to eat them, so they would exchange. It was like one french meal for 20 mris it was like some sort of <laughs> it was really funny it's just like you know in wars you always have these kinds of things you know you know some crazy. of the people in the live chat a couple of the women had said oh god bless jonathan i mean they must like you already i don't know what it is that uh is, is, is that uh that french sexiness i don't know <laughs> i don't know uh but um there's uh, there's very few of us who do these things so it's i think it might be just interesting to hear because you always see the pictures, but you never really know most of the time how it was they were taken and how to you someone got to these places and so on. You know, there was one uh, photo. I don't know if I if I have it here. Let me see. No, that's not the one. Where you were, I believe you were in Iraq, and you were trying to get a photograph of a uh, sniper who was inside a mosque. We yeah, have, and, yeah. and you put yourself at tremendous tremendous risk to get this photograph and you said had he wanted to take me out he could have done it quite easily sure so you exposed yourself and maybe the sniper saw the camera and he said i'm not gonna i'm not gonna kill the photographer but you're still putting yourself at tremendous risk to get this photograph so the photo you're talking about is a picture i took during the battle of mosul uh remember in 2017 when the Iraqi army retook the city from uh, ISIS. Um, when you're in a war zone, uh, no picture is worth your life, obviously. And sometimes you take a lot of risks because you don't know it's there and it just could happen. You don't always see it. 
in this case I knew and it's true and I kind of went on the street but Mosul was crazy there was so much fighting going on there was just all these things so everybody was a bit running around uh, but um, yeah you take these risks and um, uh, uh, humans are a very strange species you know we uh, very quickly we when civilization started, you know, flourishing very quickly, we started waging war, you know, and it's a very quick thing. It's in us, you know, for better or worse, we can have that conversation too. But um, there are times when uh, there are certain photographers who take less risk and others who take more. And these these leverages that, let's say, how far you want to push the envelope is up to the individual, and then you decide once. You're there. How far you want to go? How does being in these war zones and seeing the way things really are uh, change the way you view the world, whether it is politically or just viewing it uh, as a human being? How does it change it? Let's say politically. To answer the second part of your question first, politically, uh, I think especially with what's happening today. Um, I, people like us or like you, people who have seen over the years violence and difficulties, and it's a good reminder of uh, the good things that we have. And uh, I see a lot of people complain, a lot of people, especially today, younger generations who are not mentally prepared to to face this world, I, and who say, well, I want a better world. Unfortunately, you know, it's a bit wishful thinking, and I would like to remind, and I usually try to, is that history chooses you. You can say I'm against war, and for, it, may, it means nothing because the, this great movement of the great human experience between countries or just, you know, these will decide how you will live. As an individual, you don't make any difference, or very little, maybe locally, but not in the grand scheme of things. So war is a good reminder of, everything that you can lose if we're not careful. And I think the way that the United States is pitting from one, one side against another, if it continues like this, I wouldn't be surprised if years from now, you know, this country could have a civil war or like a secession. And I think people need to be very careful what they wish for, because if this happens, you won't be able to stop it, whatever you say on Twitter, whatever the, you, you're, you're talking. People should be very careful what they say and what they want for the future of this country or Europe. And for well, you're, you're, you're seeing, because of political factions in this country, yeah. there's, there's a lot of opposition and people are at complete polar ends of the political sure. spectrum and thought. Yeah. You see a possibility of a civil war in this country based on what you've seen in the 20 war zones you've been in in this universe? Yes, I think, uh, to expand on your question, guys, you know, like us who've been, you know, that, that who've experienced these difficulties have a true sense of realism. And we know how things can come to be and how they deteriorate into the point of no return. I think it's still very unlikely that the U.S. Will, will, will be like that. However, what history teaches us is not so much that it repeats itself. I don't like that expression. It's more that anything can happen, will happen. And... Every country, every empire, every kingdom will fail and fall at some time. Nothing lasts forever. 
And you can always already tell the way some of the southern states, you know, they're not agreeing with a lot of things that are being done in the more liberal states. The division is already there. And now there's legal divisions, you know, certain laws are being elected in Texas, you know, it's all these things. Is this where we want? If, if, if we want to split up, then good luck with that. See how that works out for us. And it's not going to end well. Because the problem with civil war, for example, is that if it starts, it's very difficult to end it. And right. there are many examples. Lebanon, there are so many examples of us just being so divided. And now they, they were being divided on racial grounds, which, in my opinion, is the most dangerous and the dumbest thing we can do. Because if that happens, God help us. But, you know, Jonathan, that seems like it's being pushed by a certain political spectrum to cause division. I mean, I, I saw, you know, when you look at the whole, uh, what, what we call in the police world last yeah. summer was the riots, what yeah. the other side calls were the peaceful protests. But usually peaceful protests don't cause billions of dollars in damages and also cause the um, injuries of thousands of cops. So I disagree when people say they were peaceful protests. And you mentioned Texas passing laws, and, and we're going to get to you have just been at the uh, Texas border, right? We're going to get to that in a second. Sure. But also, during the uh, they had the sanctuary city thing, too. Sure. And that shows another, that shows the left side. They were also not cooperating with the federal government when yeah. a Republican was in power. So you're right. There is a lot of dissension. And now, because they will not protect the border, a state like Texas is taking it upon themselves That's to right. protect the border themselves. Exactly. So, I mean, let's segue right into that. Sure. You just got back from the border. And not that it's a war zone, but uh, many will claim it's out of control. I haven't been there, so I can't say firsthand. What was your experience at the Texas border? Uh, so just to, to, to step back just a little bit, uh, it, what you said is true. There's two different visions of how people are seeing what a nation state means and what a country means. And for someone like me, and I'm sure, I think it's the same for you, it's you have to control your borders. There are laws, otherwise you don't have a country. And what is the point of being an American citizen and or paying taxes, let alone if things are just going like this? And, uh, and it's also unfair for a lot of people who are not Americans who go through the process. I did. I wasn't a U.S. citizen. I went through the process, green card, the whole thing. And it became, took a long time, but that's what it is. You know, you just have to abide by the rules. It's a big country. It's, you know, big government. takes time. And uh, it's not fair for these people who did that. And now you just go in. Now, when it comes to the border, yeah, I spent a month on assignment. I was shooting for Bloomberg, and um, this is my take on the situation. Um, obviously, uh, migration from these countries have been allowed for decades. There's nothing new. There's there ups and down. There was a deal struck, obviously, that's being hidden. This, the deal was we wanted cheap labor because we didn't want to pay for, uh, you know, we needed people to pick up our fruits and vegetables because, you know, our gen new generations are becoming you know, a little softer. Maybe they don't want to do it anymore. So uh, that's, that was the deal. Mexico, Central American countries, up to 10 years ago, had uh, explosive uh, demographic rates. So they had a lot of children. That's finished. Actually, their demography numbers, their fertility rates are collapsing rapidly. They're 
like they're just becoming at 2.0 and under, um, which means that they will no longer have the surplus of population that they had in the past, which um, which didn't care about letting go because it was less poverty on their hands. And on top of that, a lot of these workers send two to three billion dollars a year through Western Union back into Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and so on. So for these governments, it was win-win. Now, the, now it's over because they don't have kids anymore. There is a, a surge, it's true, because uh, Biden's administration was very murky about what they said publicly. And people, they look, they, they all have cell phones. All they have to do is, you know, it's how simple it is. And they just made a push for it. So uh, there was quite a bit of crossing. I think if you're a single man, they would send you back. That's always true. And then in families, a bit different. Um, if you want to help people, you want to help them where they come from. Because the moment they leave and they come to another country, it's a failure. They're leaving home. People don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to leave their ancestry, ancestral lands or where their grandparents are from. No one wants to do that. So they do it because, you know, different circumstances. But if you really want to help these Central American nations, it's not by throwing money the way uh, Kamala Harris, who has no clue what the hell she's doing, and Biden, who doesn't, probably doesn't even know what time it is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's sad. It's very sad. These people should not be in power. To be a politician at that level, you need to be someone with real, a real spine. And these people are just playing the political game, and it's quite dangerous. Well, you know, Jonathan, one of the things that no one talks about, at least on, on the left that is for open borders, is human trafficking and human smuggling. Yeah. And then take with, with that comes also the smuggling of narcotics, the smuggling yeah. of weapons, the, uh, uh, the sex trade, you know, the rape and uh, abuse of young children. They don't talk about that. And I, I, I'm sure you see a lot of that if you were down by the border where, you know, unaccompanied children are walking with people that they don't even know. You know, what do they call them? Coyotes? Uh, sure. they, they come in there to, to bring kids into this country so that they become almost instant American citizens. But it's it's so ill thought of. They're not tracking these people. They're not... Uh, they're not doing anything, and it's it's sad what 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 the border has become or lack of a border. The the situation is actually much worse. So I've I've been covering drug wars in South America, and Mexico the past two years. So it's a more recent thing. I'm not going to go into details for that so much. But uh, if we take the Mexican example, the cartels have become so powerful, not only because of their territorial gains, but also because of the diversity of their businesses that they, you could foresee, if it continues like this, uh, of a complete loss of Mexican sovereignty, meaning like legal institutions and apparatus could be taken over. They actually have their hands now on natural resources in Guerrero and Michoacan State. They've taken over the, the avocado business that we eat. So they're everywhere. It's so, it's so widespread that to stop it, it would take probably a military dictatorship in Mexico to really clamp it down. I don't think a lot of people in the U.S. realize how bad this is. And you're right, by allowing this northern Mexico, like Matamoros or like Ciudad Juarez, which is places I've spent time with in recently, there are a lot of it is controlled by cartels. The government is, is losing control. Is that where we want for the, our southern border? 
I don't think so. And the Democrats are in power now. They should be careful too, because if the if this goes into cartel control 100 percent, they're gonna have a serious problems on their hands. And what are they gonna do about it? Send the army? That could that could happen. Yeah, Jonathan, I'm just gonna go to a quick commercial, sure. and then I'm gonna tell some of the folks where they can find your photographs, where it's uh, published, and then we're gonna we're gonna go into uh, the book, The Shattered Lens, and about your abduction in april of 2013 by syrian rebels okay so let me just go to a a quick commercial right now and then we'll get back to that in a second um folks if you're looking to leave new york you've had it with the high taxes uh the bad politics whatever your reason for leaving carol waters is a realtor down in myrtle beach south carolina she formerly was the bartender at the fitzpatrick hotel for 20 years in midtown manhattan her husband, Rob Mayen, was a NYPD police officer who rolled over to the fire department, and together they're two of the top salespeople of real estate in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area. In fact, Carol Waters is a million-dollar salesperson. So if you're serious, you're looking for a vacation home, or you're looking to relocate down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, give Carol Waters a call. That's 914-261-6681. Or you can email her at carolwaterssellsmyrtlebeach at gmail.com. If any of you guys are getting into any trouble, and I hope you're not, and you need a good attorney, we have a great one that we can recommend to you. He's a retired police officer, but a top attorney right now. And his name is Joe Murray, and he's a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff. In fact, he's in the chat right now, and Joe is a hell of a guy. Uh, you can reach him on his website. Joe at jmurray-law.com. His offices are in Great Neck, uh, New York, 185 Great Neck Road. Or you can give him a call at 646-838-1702. That's Jay, Joe Murray, counselor at law. Okay, uh, Jonathan, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this story. Uh, in, in April 2013, uh, you were on a trip to Syria. And why don't you tell the story? Tell us what happened. So I used to between twenty late, so early twenty twelve and you know twenty thirteen. I used to cover the war in Syria, so I went there multiple times. And during my last trip, I was kidnapped by Islamic rebels um, about an hour and a half north of Damascus. And uh, these are guys that I actually had been kind of working with, and they decided to to capture me instead. And I spent a few months in captivity. I was tortured quite a bit, especially in the beginning. It was kind of a tough situation. Jonathan, uh, the picture on the screen, are those yeah. Syrian rebels? Yeah, but this was a previous trip. This was my second trip. Okay. Uh, this was very early in the war. They were just like popping out in small groups trying to take control of some northern lands in, um, in, in northern Syria. Okay. So and you said you were... Um, well, you were you were held captive for eighty-one days. Right. So I mean, that's that's just shy of three months. Right. That's no that's no joke. Now, were you restrained the whole time, or were you allowed to walk around? What what was your circumstances? So the first uh, the first uh, let me see month a little more I was blindfolded and attached with chains to a radiator, these kinds of things. So 
that was that's obviously a very strange moment. But they were also torturing me at that time quite a bit and doing a lot of like interrogations. So uh, I had it all. The, and then things got a little better, and they moved me to another house nearby because we were under constant attack. So there was a lot of fighting going on, like uh, jet fighters dropping bombs, helicopters, artillery, and the whole shebang. So they wanted to protect me to an area with uh, to a, a house that was more solid. Because if I get killed, then there's no money for them. So they, you have value for a while, at least, until... So they, they specifically knew, or they thought they knew, that someone was going to pay for your uh, ransom to release I mean, you. I don't think they, in that kind of, because it's, it's, it's a business, I don't think you ever really know uh, how it ends up when you're holding a hostage. But towards the end, there was a few people competing for me. And one of them was uh, Al-Nusra, who was a, a hardcore Islamic group who wanted to buy me. And this came out because there were spies that were sent by my, my contacts in Lebanon who, were, who had found me. And they, um, and they had reported that information back to my family. And they gave them that choice to actually, they had gathered 150 soldiers on the Lebanese border to go attack these rebels and get me out. Uh -huh. So that was in the plan, actually, to just because otherwise I would have been a goner. It would have been a whole different ballgame. And uh, fortunately, someone paid my ransom a couple of days later. It was just miraculous. And I was out a couple of days after that. Were you every day of your 81 days fearful that you would be killed that day? Not every day. I mean, it, it's not like, I mean, it's, it's uh, how should I say this? The mornings were always very difficult. So you wake up and you, and you have this, this slap in your face, and because you're being reminded that, of your situation, and then it's a it's a long, steep upward throughout the day to just process what. So obviously your mind goes crazy and all these things, and then you know they do things to you, and then there's fighting. You say, "Oh, I'm going to die because of a bomb," which actually I was okay with. And I, just, I was just telling myself, "Let's just end this." Because I was very resentful towards them. I was very friendly, but deep inside I was very resentful. And sometimes I was almost hoping I would die like that so they wouldn't get anything. <laughs> Duty yeah. Ron, Duty Ron, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. This is Police Off the Cuff After Hours, Real Crime Stories. And this is Jonathan Alperi, I think Alperi. I spread, yeah. Alperi, yeah, yeah. Uh, who is a wartime journalist. Actually, he goes to conflicts all over the globe and telling his story of his 81 days in captivity by syrian rebels now you you used a lot of your um i guess street smarts and psychology to sort of befriend the rebels especially the younger ones yeah. that you could convince them to get you more food or give you an extra trip to the bathroom but you know and i read also that you you taught them how to do some things like you taught them to swim yeah. And you taught them some things. And so in a way, that was probably good for your mind, too, to be able to uh, engage with them on a human way. Yeah, I mean, originally it's born out of pure survival. So they, you don't enjoy any of it. It's just what, what the, the, the zone that you, you are forced into and then you allow yourself to stay in. Um, I was raised by a, a, a Spanish mother. So I was raised by a tough, tough woman. So I already had that in me in terms of like trying to be resilient in times of true crisis. And it's true. I spent a lot of time 
making friends with all of them. And so because I wanted them to see me more as a human being and not so much as a, a commodity that has strong financial value for them. And that worked very well. And uh, that's why after a while they were much more, they were much nicer with me. The torturing disappeared, you know, and then I was had more freedom. And uh, the young guys were the easiest to manipulate because they're young and they're more curious about you than anything else. And uh, I made some friends, actually. One of them I'm still in touch uh, on Facebook. <laughs> That's unbelievable. This yeah. is one of my Syrian captors. Yeah, We're friends on friend. Facebook now. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that crazy when you think yeah, about it? Yeah, it's a weird world, this social media. But I kept touch with some of them where I got information. with Because, you know, about uh, what they call Stockholm Syndrome. And it's yes. very true. Yeah. Uh, I missed them after when I was released. It's very weird. Now, of course, that goes away. But you're still curious about finding out what happened to them and you just want to know. So I was able to find out some information and then I'm still in touch with one of them. That That's unbelievable. So uh, there's a, um, a business and a powerful businessman put up what was reported to be a half a million dollars for your okay. release. Yeah. Uh, he put up the money. I guess he was promised something for in return and whoever promised that reneged on the deal with him. So he got nothing for his half a million dollar ransom that he paid, correct? Yeah, so this guy was close to the Bashar al-Assad regime. I can't say his name. It, it doesn't matter anymore, really. But um, he was in a blacklist of a lot of powerful Syrians who were close to the regime. And usually what the U.S. government does and Europe, to a lesser extent, they freeze your assets. Uh -huh. You can't travel anywhere. And so for them, a lot of these guys were businessmen, and they had, this guy specifically had assets in Canada, and he couldn't, you know, make money or travel. So he was trying to buy himself a good name to be able to, uh, by releasing and paying for an international photographer to, but that didn't work out. Like the U.S. government doesn't really respond well to blackmail that much. Well, the danger is, is that once they pay these uh, rebels that it's going to become a business like that. Like it has, look, look at the, um, the guys who, uh, the, the pirates on the sea, right. if no one paid them, they would have no business. You know I mean? I, it's sort of strange when you see them take a Russian oil tanker and you're like, how the hell did these, you know, 10 guys on this little boat that's barely uh, afloat yeah. take a Russian oil tanker, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's always, when there's a kidnapping issue, especially in foreign land, there's always money exchange. Uh, even the U.S. or the British government who publicly say they don't negotiate, there is a third party. And there is money. It's really, there's a lot of things happening in the, in the dark that no one knows or will ever know. And but, who, uh, Jonathan, just to interrupt you for one second, sure. who are the negotiators? It could be different things, could be professionals, could be governments, it could be all kinds of people. People who are just in that business, in the kidnapping business, they make a living off it, they make a lot of money. It, it's, uh, they come from different, uh, different parts of life. Right. You know, Jonathan, before some of the folks asked um, where they could find some of your photography, and I'll just say uh, he's been published in the Sunday Times, Le Figaro magazine, Elle, American Photo, Glamour. Affin Poston, Le Monde, BBC. Today he's a photographer, Polaris Images. Um, you signed with them in February 2010. Uh, Paris Match. 
Often Poston, Times, Newsweek, Wine Spectator. Hey, can you get me some Cabernet? You got any connections with Wine Spectator? Uh, no, I don't drink wine, really. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> A Frenchman that doesn't drink wine. Yeah, well, certain kinds. Um, I, uh, they can Google me. Okay. And it'll, t it'll say all, all the um, publications they can find your photography. Yeah, yeah. You know, some of these publications are paper print, so I mean, that's hard to get now. But they could Google me. There's a lot of things out there. It's easy, I'm easy to find. Okay. Now, the other thing I wanted to touch upon is that you're held captive for 81 days. Now, obviously, and we, even as police officers, a lot of us have seen horrendous amounts of violence. And there's a certain amount of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah. And I'm sure that you experienced that uh, when you finally were able to go home. You want to uh, talk about that a bit? So uh, the, the notion of PTSD is, in my opinion, something that we should use carefully. I think a lot of people use that word all the time. Obviously, uh, over the years, police officers have it. It's normal. I mean, over the years, it's layers over layers of things that you see and experience. Uh, from my, my own experience, uh, I, of course, you know, you're, you're all, everybody's damaged to some degree or another with the things they experience. It's more about how you deal with it. For me, it's been, I've been quite good about it, and um, I consider myself being quite resilient. Maybe one day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to lose my mind. It's possible. That always happens. Uh, it's a tough business, but uh, I consider myself as someone who has made these choices in my life. And like we say in France, if you're going to jump in the fire, you have to wash yourself with, uh, with the flames. Meaning that you have to accept the butcher's bill. I mean, that's your choice. You got to do it. And uh, I don't regret anything, obviously. And the things that I've seen and experienced is very unique, and I'm very grateful for them. Because at the end of the day, I've always wanted to experience history in the making. And what, and what better ways to do it than being in war? And um, so I'm. sometimes when I come home after a hard trip, it's a bit difficult, a couple of weeks, but usually I bounce back pretty quickly. And then I go back to my normal life in New York and I have a lot of friends. I go out, I have a social life and everything. But, but Jonathan, specifically when you came home after 81 days of captivity, how long of a period did it take you to adjust back to what you would consider or I would consider a normal life? Um, so very quick. So a couple of weeks I was off and I had to restart my life. Uh, for example, uh, I had a problem with the IRS who were going after me because I didn't pay my taxes, but I couldn't pay them because I was held hostage. Isn't that, isn't that a pisser? You're held hostage. You couldn't pay them, and they're going after you. Yeah, I love it. that. And we that. had to have the service intervene against them to tell them like it was true and they were still asking for money. It was a real thing. It was just, it's, it's funny now, but back then I couldn't believe it. And uh, my, the, the way I dealt with it, to, to be completely um, concrete with your uh, question, is uh, I went right back into it. So in January 2014, a few months, I was back in late August. So by January, I was in Egypt covering the, the bombings and the riots. And then the war in the Ukraine started, and I covered that war for two years. Yeah, because I read that after um, you had gone home, um, this was 2013. Yeah. In 2014, there was the war in the Ukraine, and you That's couldn't right. wait to get back there. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, I talk to a lot of cops that um, – 
they work for as contractors, you sure. know, in uh, military contractors. Yeah. And a lot of guys that keep enlisting and going back, right. when they're there, they want to come home. But when they come home, they want to be back there. Yeah. So, I mean, you probably have the same feeling being a war photographer. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to explain. Um, I don't have so much the part where I need to be home so much. I mean, I like to be home and I see my family and friends and everything, but um, it's more for me, it's more like I want to be there. And uh, if I see something on television, something big happening, it's something is boiling inside me and I need to go. Now, obviously, I don't always go because financially it doesn't make sense. My clients are not interested. So there are different uh, technicalities that come into play. But uh, war is a bit like a drug, you know, it never leaves you. And that's the same for soldiers. It's always there until you die. You know, it's um, it's part of you, and it calls you. And it's very, it's a bit like uh, you know, um, to make a complete comparison. When you talk to people who do heroin, they talk like that. I think it, it it triggers a similar portion of the brain that just keeps you know it's not good for you, but you still go for it. Yeah, I read the the book by Keith Richards. Oh yeah, sure. he looks. He looks at his years as a as a heroin addict quite fondly, and I'm just like, this guy was a junkie, nearly yeah. died numerous times, but he looks at uh, that. Well, he survived it, and he I did. guess he's I guess he's sober now. But uh, Michella Pranzo, thank you for the five dollar super chat, Princess Mitch. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening. This is Jonathan Alpelry. I and I don't know if I pronounce your name again. Yeah, it's fine. not so easy. Um, a fascinating, fascinating life. I mean, you know, one of the things that some of the people in the chat were asking, and of course, this is probably a given, how many colleagues have you lost in these war zones? So there are guys that I knew. I, I, okay, so the ones that I'm close to, uh, there are very few, but uh, I, they're alive and they're well, they're kicking. Uh, there are guys that I knew a little bit, I don't know, maybe half a dozen yeah half a dozen and but also but about people that you just became close to from being embedded with them yeah i mean there are guys you know it's uh yeah there are guys that i knew that were killed they were not photographers or anything the thing about photography is that you need to be fairly close to get the shot that you need if you're a writer you can make that decision and be a little bit more uh remote a cameraman too, they need to be at the front. And that's, right. that's really us who do get most of the casualties. Uh, and photographers are crazy sometimes. Well, I've read the uh, some of the works by Sebastian Younger. Sure. And I uh, he wrote the, that book, I think, Restrepo. Yeah. And he was, he was right in there with these guys. And I was like, wow, that's really got to be crazy. And, you know, look, you can leave whenever the hell you want to leave. No one's yeah. holding you there, you know, but that's, I mean, it's a scary thing, you know, and, and thank God there are people like you uh, and like Sebastian Younger that go into these war zones and tell the story from uh, a perspective of, of being there, of being right in the front lines. But the, the other thing he talks about, which is very true, is when you spend enough time with these young guys, these soldiers, you you, you like them, you, you you care for them. Like you, usually they're younger than you. They're like just boys, you know. They're 18, 20, 25. 
and um, you uh, you develop strong relationships with them, like friendships, because you, like I was saying earlier, you suffer with them, you know, and that bond uh, which they experience with the other other soldiers in the same unit is similar with us. And when you come home, sometimes you stay in touch with them, you know, it happens a lot, and you um, you hope they're okay, you know, you actually you care for them in a genuine fashion. When when you come home. Um... Do you ever run into some of the same people who you ran into over in some of these war zones in New York City? Very few. I don't, to be honest, I don't really have, I don't make friends that much with people in my profession. I have done very well on my own and that's the way I am. But uh, it's, I have three or four very well-known war photographers that I'm close to and they're, uh, they're in their 50s, so they're older than I. But, uh, you know, you meet a lot of these guys on the field, you know, there's not so many of us, so you, you, you have good relationships then. When you come home, it doesn't mean that you spend time with them. I don't necessarily want to talk about work when I get home. <laughs> no, 100%. You probably want to come home to just like your normal life of being yeah. a, uh, yeah, a regular guy. <laughs> you know, when you want, say, you get an, say there's a, a war breaks out, you want to go. Now, obviously, you want a company to finance your trip and to pay you to take these photographs. How, how do you work that out? Well, it depends. So there are very, there are various ways. Sometimes you get assignments, they pay for your way and then they, you get a day rate or you get a package and get published stuff like that. So that's, that's nice. Uh, that's harder to get now because the media doesn't really have any money anymore or less than less. You can raise your own money. I do that. That's one way to do it. Uh-huh. Um, and then you can, uh, so you can, oh, you can front your own money, but you know you're going to get published. I always get well published, so I know even if I front my own money, I'll make money back. Uh, of course, the, the technicality in terms of the lucrative side of our business is now a big problem because the media is no longer, I mean, I used to make good money with Vanity Fair, for example. They don't really pay anymore. And no one's paying anymore. It's Is like, that because everything's gone digital and everything's on the internet and there's very few magazines and there's very few, you know, it, photography has moved online too, right? So, yeah, it's a multitude of reasons. That's one of them. Social media has killed. We're too expensive. Uh, if you want to hire, like, hiring guys, it costs, you know, obviously, but you're going to get something good. And uh, a lot of medias have opted for guys on the ground that are already there, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. Uh, so it's become tough. And also, um, covering wars is becoming difficult because I think the, the, the public's interest has waned quite a bit. And uh, it's no longer, maybe there's been too much of it, you know, there's too much stuff out there now. And uh, but sometimes, uh, for example, my last big conflict was uh, I was covering the war in Armenia because six months ago. I was at the front for about uh, the entire war. That made a lot of coverage, so that was very good. But these don't come around so often. Well, let me ask you something, Jonathan. You're, I guess, I know you were born in 1979, so yeah. you just crossed that 40 barrier, 41, right. 42, right? Mm -hmm. And how much longer do you think? Not just can you do this, will you want to do this? Yeah. And what might photography take you in another direction? Uh, I mean, I got other things cooking, you know, I have other businesses, so I'm active in different worlds, but I am preparing for that afterlife. 
it's hard to let go. <laughs> After life, it might be keeping you alive if you're yeah, stuck right. in the war zone, you know? Yeah. Well, for me, it would be like quite a change, but uh, I don't know. Maybe if I meet the right woman and have kids, and you know? That, that's I'll, right. You may say, hey, I'm now I'm going to become a wedding photographer. I'm going to oh, make, the, no, movie, make not, the movie the wedding I, photographer. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm banned for life after what I did last time. <laughs> they were not so happy. Anyway, but... Um, no, I think I have a couple of good years, you know, still left and stuff like that. It's not like an athlete. But you could go on to your 60s, 70s. I keep doing that if you want to. Some guys right. have but I, I think that, you know, we all go through different periods in our life where maybe you don't want to take as many risks as you get older as you did when you were younger, you know. Sure. I remember when I was a young cop, I thought I was indestructible, you know. And then as you get older, you're like... Maybe it's not a good idea for me to run through that uh, door right now. You know, maybe I should wait till I get some backup, you know, before I do that. And maybe that's the same thing about being a photographer in a war zone. Maybe I should stop doing this and stop, start doing something else. And I'm not saying that's you, but maybe you'll change direction at some point. Like you said, maybe you'll meet the right woman. You get married. You'll have kids. You'll have a picket fence. You'll have a basketball court in your yard, you know. And so you never know, right? Yeah, you never know. I mean, it's, you know, the, the way I see this, to be completely frank with you, is we have, we, we have that very brief spark of being on this planet. It's very quick, few decades we live and then that's it. And um, I want to be able to experience as much as possible while I'm on this planet. You, you see what I mean? And I don't want 100%. to... 100%. You understand, so I don't want to waste uh, time, and that's obviously it sounds silly a little bit because of uh, the kind of the line of work I'm in, but I've always wanted to experience as much of human history, and I think the saddest thing for me is one day I'm going to die and I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not going to be part of it anymore. Well, Jonathan, I think that you have had and are having an exciting life. You've probably lived ten lives compared to a lot of people that don't take the risks that you take and are taking and probably will take in the future. Uh, your book is The Shattered Lens, Jonathan Alpiri. It's a story of a war photographer and how he was taken uh, hostage for 81 days by Syrian rebels. Jonathan, we're coming up on um, 53 minutes, so uh, I want to start closing out, have some last words. you have any last words, anything you want to plug? Anything you want to tell our audience while uh, while you're still here? Uh, no, well, the, the one thing I wanted to say, you know, in reference to your background and, and the podcast that you have, I, I'm one of these people, and I know there are many out there, and they're afraid to say it, and I think it's people need to build up a bit more courage, is I think we need to really look out for our police officers. And I think we really need to, I don't think people understand what it's like. And I know now there's a real decline, and I'm, I live in New York, so I, I know this. And the, that cognitive war that's being waged against police officers is one of the dumbest thing I've, I, I can. I didn't even think this was possible in the U.S. And I think that's very unfortunate. And people who are into defund the police, I don't think they know what they're talking about. And I always say to people who disagree with me, when there's a real problem, who are you going to call? You know. You know, Jonathan, I'm so happy that you said that, and like. When I talk to people that may be of the uh, progressive point of view or the liberal point of view and tell them that this war on police, is it's been over two years, probably a little more than two years when yeah. it started. 
And it's really a really that whole defund movement and the attacks on the police, you know, and the George Floyd thing where one cop did something and they try to destroy an entire mm. profession. It's like it's so unreasonable. And when you the left always talks about, oh, we look at the science. Well, the science is one guy did something. Don't yeah. blame the whole profession. And I thank you, Jonathan, for saying what you just said. And I really take what you said as uh, important because you've seen the world. You've seen the best and you've seen the worst. Yeah, like they, they don't give you the big picture. You know, there are tens of millions of interactions between police and people and 99.9 are, are good and they're doing something right. But to expect that in life everything is going to be 100% is ludicrous. 100%. Joe Murray, thank you for the $10 super chat. NG Yang, thank you for the $10 super chat. The, Jonathan is an amazing guest. You know, it's funny, Jonathan, when I, I just want to tell a quick story of how uh, I met you. Uh, Joe Belcastro, who happens to be a friend of mine, who was a great street crime cop. I actually knew him when he was a cop in the 6th Precinct when I lived down there. He messaged me and said, oh, I have this guy. His name's Jonathan Alpiri, and he's a war photographer, blah, 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 blah. I go, how do you know him? Oh, he goes, I met him through blah, 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 blah. And I was like, this is a small world to the podcasting world because then it turned out that you know Joe Pistone, who I've had on the show, you know, I've had great on the show way. twice. So I was like, this is fun. This is great. You know, that's what you yeah. said. It's a small world. It really is. No, they're good guys. Um, I'm grateful for having them in, as friends. So. Well, Jonathan, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. The folks in the chat that watch the show, you, you're a fascinating guest. And uh, I'll give you one one more goodbye, and then we're going to sign off. Well, listen, thank you for everything. And uh, I, I'm happy that the guests are happy with this uh, interaction. And uh, I hope it was useful for each one of them. A hundred percent. I'm Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Uh we're signing off right now with Jonathan Alpiri, who is a war photographer, and his book is The Shattered Lens. Thank you so much for listening.